your voice. Okay, so this evening, I am going to speak a bit, uh, both about and from kind of a riffing, if you will, on uh, a sutta, which is called the Atta Danda Sutta. And I was just introduced to this sutta myself a couple weeks ago by a dear uh, Dharma friend, uh, as she and I were discussing the state of the world. And she said, do you know about the Atta Danda Sutta? And I had never heard of it. So I have been reading it and um, kind of chewing on it and wondering about it. And I'm happy to share a bit of it with you. So Atta, uh, we know the word Atta mostly in Buddhist teaching from the word Anatta, right? One of the three characteristics, which we described as no self or non-self or no separate solid self. It's really in many ways the kind of centerpiece of you know, the sort of revolutionary teaching embedded or offered by the Buddha. So an, A-N, means no or non. And atta, or atman, means self. So uh, the atta danda sutta, the first part of it is a self, and danda is a stick. <laughs> So you have to imagine the image of a, a self, a person carrying a stick. And the term, when you put those two parts together, is um, it has different translations, but it's about uh, arming oneself. We could say defending oneself. It's sometimes described as a form of violent conduct, behaving as if we were walking around carrying a stick. And it's important to understand that the sutta isn't suggesting that this is how we should behave. <laughs> it's actually um, the opposite. And in particular, this sutta is, it's a description of the relationship between fear and violence or in a broadest in broad way bad behavior which seemed to me to be such an important piece for us to explore now in a world where there is so much uh, violence so much harm happening all around the violence of war violence of the harm that's being done to our our planet our home the violence of racism and oppression there's this divisiveness that creates harm i'm gonna mute there we go um So 
So how do fear and violence interact and how does understanding this, as we'll see as we take a look at what the sutta has to say, how does our understanding the relationship between fear and violence help us untangle, help us begin to find a sense of peace? Not peace and equanimity in the sense of indifference, but peace in the sense that we are then able to respond to the violence, to the divisiveness, to the suffering, the difficulty that is all around and within us. So the opening line of this sutta, this is a, from a translation by um, Andy Olinsky, who is a teacher at um, IMS or at the uh, Buddhist uh, Barry, the Buddhist Buddhist Center for the Center for Buddhist Studies, the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies (BCDS), and he translates the opening line of the sutta like this. He says, "Fear is born of arming oneself. Fear is born of arming oneself." <clears throat> This is a little bit archaic language, which some of the early Buddhist teachings are. But here's the thing that's so interesting about that opening line is that basically it's exactly the opposite of how we think. We think that we arm ourselves because we're afraid. The Buddha says that it is arming ourselves that causes fear. Hmm? Pretty interesting. And for me, this line <laughs> in his translation, Andy Olensky says, the first line is a showstopper. <laughs> and for me, the first line is so important because I think it points us to so much of the heart of Buddhist teaching which is almost always taking our usual way of seeing things, of understanding things, of relating to the world and flips it around. It is, I often like to say that when we talk about awakening, when we talk about waking up, what that means is that we see things in a way that is often you know, 180 degrees different from what we thought. So what we think is that we arm ourselves in order to be less afraid. And he's saying, no, it's the other way. That we are afraid because we are armored. We are afraid because we are defended. We're afraid because we are constantly we might say in the sort of Buddhist lingo, self and othering. And this of course is not a small thing, right? We see the seed of it here in this teaching and we see the horrific consequences of what happens as this misunderstanding plays out
I always have I, this memory bubbles up of um, visiting, I was a decade or more now ago, visiting uh, South Africa and staying with some friends of friends who uh, were white South Africans who lived in what we would think of here as a gated community. But this was not your normal gated community. This was a gated community in which there was a gate and then there were guards who walked the property with dogs. And then there was the house that had this most elaborate that I've ever seen alarm system with beams of light. And if you touched the beam of light, the alarms would go off, you know. But the, the, the piece that really got me was um, seeing that in the house where these people lived, the downstairs was the kitchen and the living room and so on, and then upstairs were the bedrooms. And between the downstairs and the upstairs, there was this giant metal door that they closed and locked at night. And I remember thinking, oh, they're in prison. This is fear and armoring. We think that armoring ourselves helps us decrease our fear, but actually fear comes from armoring ourselves. It was so painful and vivid for me. Of course, this is true, not just there, but it was so stark in that example. So how do we disarm? How do we disarm ourselves? Well, one of the things I like a lot about this sutta, I'll read for, to you in just a moment about it, is that in the, um, in the first half of the teaching, it's, it's supposedly one of the earliest uh, teachings from the Buddha, one of the first things that he said. And it's a very, um, sometimes Buddhist teaching can feel kind of stiff and uh, because it was an oral tradition, it sort of has this repetitive quality. But this teaching, it's, it's very intimate in a way. It's the Buddha speaking in first person. And the whole first part of the sutta is really him describing his despair at the state of the world. I, for me, I find that so touching because we someone sometimes um, imagine that you know the Buddha is beyond all that. I'm seeing Louisa, your um, question. The name of the sutta, I'll just spell it out for you. It's A-T-T-A, -T -A, Atta, like self. And the second part of it is Danda, D-A-N-D-A. -D -A. It's all one word. Yeah, thanks for asking that. 
So I'll read you a bit from the um, opening and you'll get a flavor perhaps of um, this quality of how it was for the Buddha. This is the awakened Buddha looking out at the world and what he saw. He says, just see how many people fight. I'll tell you about the dreadful fear that caused me to shake all over. Seeing creatures flopping around like fish in too shallow water. <laughs> Great image. Seeing creatures flopping around like fish in too shallow water. So hostile to one another. Seeing this, I became afraid. Seeing people locked in conflict, I became completely distraught. So I hope in some way that in sharing this, that if you yourself, if I myself have felt afraid, distraught in the past day or week or year or years, that you know yet you're in good company, that the Buddha too, when he looked around also felt afraid and distraught. And I think there's a there's an important teaching embedded here, which is that this is not a practice that invites us to turn away from difficulty. This is a practice that invites us to, to turn toward, to hear the cries as the name of the great Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of compassion is described as the one who hears the cries of the world. This is a, a practice that invites us to turn toward, not to ignore, not to jump over, not to harden our hearts. So I have more to say about the fact that this is a description of a very human Buddha that um, we are uh, hearing here. But I, I want to offer before I go there, um, <laughs> so what's, what does he say to do about it? Because he does in this um, sutta. And the answers probably will not surprise you because Buddhist teaching kind of says the same thing over and over again. But there are two key pieces that he says. And the first is that we should let go of this sense of self, this clinging to I, me, and mine. And he describes it in a beautiful way. He said, this is the Buddha looking within himself to wonder, how do I find a sense of peace in the midst of this fear and violence? And he says, I came to discern a thorn hard to see, 
lodged deep in the heart. Such beautiful imagery. We have the fish flopping around and we have a thorn in the heart. And he says, only if you remove the thorn, can you settle down? Can you find a sense of peace? And then he goes on to describe what he understood to be that thorn. And he says, simply, though it's not an easy teaching, that that thorn is what he calls eye-making. I'll read you the text. He says, for whom there is no eye-making, for whom there is no this is mine, nor that is theirs, for whom there is no finding of a self, for whom does not grieve, I have nothing. This is the one that finds, removes that thorn in the heart and finds a sense of peace. So this is very traditional anatta, right? This is the Atadanda Sutta, and we're talking now about the, the truth of non-self. And it's really important here that the Buddha doesn't mean there's nobody home. What he's saying is that we can look for ourselves in our own hearts and find that place where we are I, me, and mining, where we're holding on. I think one of the ways that we can see this most clearly, especially these days, is where we're holding on to our fixed views and opinions, where we're sure we're right and someone else is wrong, where we're sure that we're different from those other people, the places where we draw a line and divide ourselves, separate ourselves. This is where armoring, arming ourselves begins. So we don't, in the same way that we don't turn away from suffering, we're not trying to get rid of a self. <laughs> we don't need to. We just need to see it for what it is. This is the fundamental practice of mindfulness, that we sit in the actual direct experience of being alive and we notice that everything is changing, that moments arise and pass, sensations, sounds, thoughts, feelings. It's fluid, it's alive. And it is in our thinking process that we, you know, we freeze frame things, that we create a sense of separate solid I. And so our practice is always an invitation to shift, as Pema Chodron says, out of the storyline into the direct experience. And we don't have to get rid of the storyline. You can have whatever ideas about yourself or about the world that you want. Just don't hold them. Just don't believe them. 
so fully. Bring this quality of kind of open, receptive curiosity that we cultivate when we're practicing mindfulness to what's here. This is what begins to allow that shift in orientation that becomes a doorway for freedom, a doorway for peace. So that's one part of what the Buddha says uh, about how to remove the thorn in the heart. And there's one more piece. Oh yeah, <laughs> this is so good. Basically he says, um, the other thing that we wanna practice is uh, what we might simplify as be here now. He says, I'll read you the, um, what it says in the sutta. He says, what, it, what went before, let go of that. All that's to come, have none of that. Don't hold on to what's in between. Even when you're in the present, don't hold on, right? Let things come and go. And then you'll wander fully at peace. So this too is very uh, much at the heart of our practice of mindfulness. It's about learning how to be right where we are, learning to watch what we call the papancha, the proliferation of mind, how the mind is constantly running into the future. Uh-oh, what's going to happen? I'd better arm myself. It's constantly running into the past, remembering, rehashing, worrying, blaming, like that. And so these two parts of releasing the grip of I, me, and mine, and inviting ourselves again and again to be right where we are, to come here, to come here, to come here. This is the way we remove the thorn in the heart. But I think it's important to name another dimension of the practice. It's not in the sutta. It's sort of implied in the sutta, but I will speak to it anyway, which is this practice of heartfulness, this corollary to mindfulness. the practice of what we refer to as the Brahma-viharas, the cultivation of these boundless qualities of the heart, of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And it's important to recognize that these qualities are not what we think of as emotion. Emotions are what come and go. These are more, these qualities of heart are more like flavors or colors that 
you know, they scent our awareness. They're, they have to do with how we relate to our experience. So our basic mindfulness is, can we be with, be with, be with what's here? And the qualities of the heart have to do with how we're with. Can we be with what arises with kindness, with warmth, with friendliness? Can we be with enjoyable, delightful experience, allowing a sense of joy, of delight to arise? Can we be with difficult experience and meet it with tenderness, with compassion? And can we cultivate this quality, this silvery moon quality of equanimity so that the constant flow of pleasant, of unpleasant, of beautiful and tragic experience can be held without our losing our seat. We know how difficult this is. So one of the reasons that I think it's important to bring in this practice is uh, that many of you may know that the teachings of metta, of the Brahma Viharas, and the Metta Sutta in particular, it was a teaching that the Buddha offered specifically in relationship to fear. That may not seem obvious, but the story is that the Buddha had sent some of his monks off to a graveyard to do meditation. It was a traditional sitting in the charnel grounds. It was part of the deepening of our understanding of impermanence actually watching a body decay. We don't do that anymore. Now we take uh, bodies and rush them away. We don't see it. And we plump them up and make them look like they're still alive even when they're not anymore. But this was not the practice in the time of the Buddha. So interestingly, he sends these monks off to the charnel grounds to do their meditation and they get really freaked out. And interestingly, they don't actually get freaked out because they're afraid of the decay and death. They get freaked out because they um, <laughs> encounter these evil tree spirits. I love that part of the story. Because it, it for me, it makes me stretch my understanding of what's real, right? Like how often do you hear us talking about tree spirits in modern America? Not that often. But at the time of the Buddha, tree spirits were just a normal, natural, everyone understood they existed part of reality. So there were these evil tree spirits who were um, uh, kind of torturing the monks. I don't know if they were hissing at them or throwing things at them, but they were making it very difficult for them to meditate. And the monks got afraid. 
and they ran back to the Buddha from the charnel grounds and said, ah, you know, and in response, he didn't say, you know, buck up or arm yourselves. He gave them the teachings on loving kindness. So there's a direct connection between fear and disarming or removing that thorn in the heart and cultivating this quality of tenderness, of warmth, of kindness in the heart. Learning to begin to flavor, to shape, to scent our mindfulness, the way we pay attention to what we notice with this flavor like the it's like a spice you know that you would add to a soup <laughs> with the the spicing of kindness which of course we know is so difficult for us it's not our usual right our usual is this can't possibly be right whatever it is however it is i'm doing it this can't be right <laughs> if i'm feeling unsettled or upset or distressed, this can't be right. I must be doing something wrong. This is, this is an alternative. If I'm feeling unsettled or disoriented or upset, maybe instead of judging ourselves, we can say, oh, what would it mean? What would it mean? How would it mean? How could I be kind? How could I let myself be filled with beautiful, compassionate colors of the sunset? How could I touch those experiences that I feel inside me, that I see outside me, that I hear in the news every day? How could I touch that with kindness? rather than rejecting it or judging. It's a very simple path, and it is, as we know, not at all easy. So, I'll pause in a few moments, but I do um, I do want to give this sidebar that feels like a bit of a sidebar, but to me feels important, which is to speak to the the humanness of this teaching and to speak to in that way the humanness of the Buddha, that the Buddha, just like the Buddhist monks got freaked out in the graveyard, you know, from the tree spirits and came back, ah, you know, and the Buddha offered these kind words, you know, this teaching of loving kindness, that the Buddha also, when he looked out at the world, felt upset, despairing, distressed at what he saw. And the thing that I think is important to, to say here is that mm, 
we can understand the figure of the Buddha as both a historical figure and also as a mythic figure. And we can get those two pieces mixed up in a way that I think doesn't serve us very well. So the Buddha was a human being and he got irritated with his monks. He made some decisions that maybe weren't the most skillful. He spoke in ways that, you know, he later changed his mind about. <laughs> and as this sutta suggests, he felt despair and distress. This is the human part of the Buddha. And this is the part that I think helps us understand that he was like us. And that we too, when we do this practice, can begin to cultivate even little slivers of peace, of kindness, of freedom, that we too can begin to have these moments of reorientation. And part of what makes it difficult for us is that we also have this kind of mythic view of the Buddha. The Buddha as this kind of archetypal figure. And this is also useful. I think it's important for us to have these mythic figures, but just not to confuse them with the human figure. That there is historical truth and mythic truth are both true, but they're different. And the historical truth points us to what happened when. Although, and certainly we know this is true in Buddhist history, you know what they say that the history is never written down by the ones who lost the battle, right? And so that the history as we learn it is often slanted. And certainly we see this in the oral tradition of Buddhism in which we know nothing was written down for 400 years or, or more, that what gets passed along was recorded by presumably mostly male monastics who had a position of power. And so what they wrote down was, you know, slanted and selective. There were many parts that were left out. And this is important when reading the historical facts, that's just a slice, it's not the whole truth. And when we look at the mythic, the archetypal, now there we want to make sure that we're not confusing the archetypal and saying, oh, I should be like that. <laughs> and if I'm not, I'm somehow failing. Or this mythic view of the Buddha, of this, you know, fully enlightened being floating around, you know, without any suffering, that that feels so far beyond what is possible for us. And instead to understand that these, um, these archetypal truths, these mythic figures are the whole point is that they're, they're orienting us toward a sense of possibility. They're not saying you should be this. They're just pointing us to what's possible. 
And what's possible is always something that is, how would I say, beyond what we might imagine is possible for us now, beyond our felt familiar sense of self, of I, me, and mine. I always have this funny image that comes up here, which is, um, you know, of uh, the movie Star Wars, which is as much as any movie I've seen, like totally a mythic archetypal, you know, good and evil battle taking place. And there's that scene where uh, Luke has that sword, you know, and he's blindfolded. And he's being told, feel the force, Luke, feel the force, right? And I think this is what our task is. This is what we're being invited into in a mythic way, is to feel something beyond ourselves. And we can't see it. We don't know it's there, but we're being encouraged. We're not being blamed or judged for not being there already. It's more like we're just being invited. With this quality of kindness to know that as much as we may look out through our eyes and feel despair, as the Buddha did, as the historical Buddha did, that this mythic Buddha is also pointing us in a direction in which we can stretch past what's, what we know, in which we can begin to imagine that something is possible that we might not be able to see from here. And that that, when held appropriately, is a great kindness. It's not a judgment. It's not a slap on the wrist. It's not you're getting a C on your test. It's an invitation. So I've rattled on for some time and will invite uh, anyone, I see Claire's got a hand up. Any Anyone will start with you and anyone else who wants to um, say or ask anything, please, Claire. Hi, Pam. Thank you so much. That's, wow, so much to digest. And uh, <laughs> <Agreed>. <laughs> you could have done it over two weeks, I think. But anyway, <laughs> um, thank you. And such deep work that you have given us all to uh, work with. One of the things that just because the mindfulness of dharmas is such deep work, and that's really what, yeah, just um, the second part that you're talking about. So, but one thing that occurred to me is that in between the disarming, like the removal of the thorn and the cultivation of the Brahma Viharas, there's that, there's that space in between where you are one is very very vulnerable and actually i was thinking of the real experience of removing a thorn there's a wound and there's pain and that needs to be tended to before we can just kind of put that limb or whatever it is out in the world and 
it just made me think about the vulnerability and that real squishiness that happens when we're willing to remove it. But it's like, we, we still need to have a kind of, we still need to have some kind of, I mean, the word protection, you know, there's a kind of protection that is the kindness and the safety and protection that we offer ourselves when we're healing from that wound and the protection that divides us. And so that's just what I was thinking. There, there's this place in between where we have to like make ourselves well, be, remove the thorn, but then make ourselves well while we are in the process of cultivating hmm. everything. If Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. I, I feel like maybe another way to think of it is that we practice the cultivation of kindness and compassion before we move the, remove the thorn. So, <laughs> yeah, so it's not like we, because your point is a really good one. We don't remove the thorn and then walk around bleeding, right? That wouldn't be so skillful. But that, you know, the, what, what, the, what is described in the sutta is that what's needed to remove the thorn is the understanding of non-self, is this letting go of I, me, and mining. And what I'm suggesting, my own variation of it, is that what's also needing, needed before we remove the thorn is this kindness, this compassion, this tenderness toward ourselves, so that when the thorn is removed, as you're saying, we have the capacity to hold that wounded place, that tender place in us with these qualities of the heart. Right. And, and I'm just suggesting too, that there's going to be some lag time after that, you know, after <laughs> that kind of protective layer has come off with the thorns removed, even if we start from a place of kindness and compassion and love that there's going to be a lag time before we get mm -hmm. to the other side, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And I, I think it's a good, I think it's a fair call to, to your point that, you know, the, the, maybe it's not so wise to go yanking that thorn out. Maybe it's not so wise to, to take on the stance of letting go of this separate solid self unless and until that kindness is already deeply woven in, right? So that as the thorn is removed and maybe we don't yank it out, maybe it comes out slowly, I don't know. But we have the wisdom first to see that it's there and to understand what it is, but we also, have the kindness to take care of it, as you're saying, to care for ourselves, to tend the wound, right? As the understanding evolves, you know, and deepens. Yeah. Right, and, and also maybe like you said, with wisdom being an important aspect because we have to understand uh, our own capacity. Right. You know? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so please don't go yanking out your thorns, people. <laughs> I mean, one way to say this is that there is a kind of um, spiritual bypass that can happen when we have some insight into emptiness, into no separate solid self. 
and we can walk around actually sometimes kind of stomp around saying oh there's not really anybody here stomp 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 and we're unkind in that insight to ourselves and to others and so that it's so essential to not do that to include this quality of wisdom that weaves kindness that understands our tenderness in that way. Yeah. Thank you, Claire. Ali. Hi, thanks, Pat. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much. It was just so much that you said. So I pick up one of the things that you had mentioned that came to me with that sutta. The fear is born out of the arming or armoring ourselves. And then when I was thinking about that, you know, internally, my own image of the inner critic came up yeah. and then uh, you had mentioned that the person that is has that armor and the translation is that someone with the stick that's there mm. and i realized that i gave him the stick you know mm. the inner critic mm. uh and it's been operating inside i mean some so i speak about myself and then that's 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 a conditioning that a lot of us have and then yeah. uh, and then especially that has arised during the past two years of the pandemic about the, uh, you know, oh, oh, what's going to happen to me, you know, mm. when I walk out or something like that. Mm. So it's been over uh, vigilant on that. So I'm just wondering if uh, you can just say a few more words mm. on that. Uh, us armoring the inner critic and then inner critic seeing, uh, you know, outside and then inside if I do something that is not skillful that can harm me. Yeah, it's such a good point. I appreciate you um, bringing that up because I was speaking more about the way in which we look outside and feel a sense of distress. But of course, there is the, the stick carrying inner critic as well as you're pointing to. And that is also important to in the same way that you know you see in the sutta the buddha isn't turning away from the pain of the world that we don't turn away from or ignore this critic that lives in us all of us lived in the buddha too but we see it clearly and that the wisdom of that clear seeing is paired as we've been talking about with kindness with kindness to ourselves, because otherwise, more or less, the critic's gonna win. You know, it's got a bigger stick, <laughs> as it were, and it will just keep hammering away. And so, again, this combination of wisdom of clear seeing oh, this is the critic happening now with kindness, which could mean like having a wound. Ouch. Oh, sweetheart. Okay. Let's, you know, that, that those two pieces come together because if we don't see it clearly, then it's hard to be, know what to be kind to. And if we do see it clearly, but we're not kind, then it's very hard to heal. So the fight, I think Claire was saying that there is this kind of gaping wound that we don't have a bandage for, right? So yes, the same principles that I'm speaking of about seeing outside are, are equally, maybe even more true for working with this inner critic. 
So thank you for bringing that up. Thank you. And then also just a quick point on that is that then it's just basically the meditation that makes us see it. Right. I mean, just the more we see it, the hopefully the, the less the, it'll appear more next time. But it's just embedded. Well, so the the I, I'm sort of speaking about these two dimensions of meditation and they're not really separate. They are very much two sides of a coin. And one side is the mindfulness, which is, we might say, the wisdom practice, the clear seeing, the being with, the noticing, right? So again, if you don't notice your critic, it sort of got you by the throat. So that's the practice of mindfulness is seeing it clearly. But that is paired with this quality of kindness. It's the it's the we see it clearly and then what's the flavor of how we relate to what we see hmm? and if we don't have the kindness then mostly what we how we relate to what we see is some form of judgment or blame that's the that's the habitual response and so instead we can begin to see clearly and have this softening right they go side by side. They work side by side. Yeah. Thank you very much. And just really quick, quickly, but the ultimate, uh, I mean, as you were mentioning about the historical uh, Buddha and then the mythical uh, Buddha, would you say that is the same analogous as the uh, ultimate uh, truth and the relative one as they speak, speak about uh, seeing the human part and then the... Um, kind of. They're a little bit different. Yeah, They're okay. a little bit different. I was just trying to point to that because I think that we often hold this mythic view of the Buddha and then compare ourselves. Right. And that, that's, not, that's not so helpful, yeah. right? Um, so that was, that was why I gave that sort of sidebar ramble about that was to make that, try to make that point. So thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, Louisa. Hello, everyone. Can you guys hear me okay? Yeah. Um, yeah, really love this talk. Really resonated with the sutta. Um, what I've been trying to do in this moment is to summon this uh, sense of creativity and imagination of a better future, of a different story moving forward. You know, and I really like how you brought the Star Wars, uh -huh. Feel the Force. It's like, you know, it's like making this future, future memory of a possible better future. So that's kind of... Mm what I've been trying to work with in this moment of crisis and also mm -hmm. what I wanted to just bring in that I've been really looking at my biases and how I react and how I respond to, and how I'm just trying very hard to live in either or, um, either in. or no, in a both ends, uh -huh. in both ends. You yeah. know, and I'm trying to be like, okay, like I, I'm trying to understand everyone's point of view without being judgmental. Mm -hmm. um, so that has been a practice that 
has been helpful. Um, but yeah, and I think there's just, there's movements of history. They're just so much bigger than us. That So, so um, just to say that in that same spirit, Louisa, that, that the, we want to hold that mythic sense of possibility that you're describing so important for us, especially when we're in a place that feels so despairing, you know, as the Buddha was describing uh, in, in the sutta. But we also, we don't want to do, we want to do the both end, right? We want to yeah. hold that possibility, but we also don't want to look away from yeah. the real suffering, the real pain, the real oppression that is unfolding. So it's both. And this is the essence of this teaching is that there is an invitation to not fall on one side or the other. Okay. To not yeah. either fall into despair or go into a kind of Pollyanna hopefulness, but yeah. to somehow find within us the fluidity, the flexibility, the wisdom and kindness to be able to straddle both. Awesome. And then yeah. in a similar way to be able to do that with people who are, have very different views and opinions from us. It's the same sort of flexing the same muscle, if you will, or stretching gotcha. maybe the same muscle as well. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. that's helpful. Yeah. So, so yes, yeah, we are um, at time. So I'll just offer a few moments of um, dedication and um, thanking all of you for being here, coming, showing up, sharing the sharing and creating the space and taking a moment to just maybe breathe a little bit in and out of the heart. with this simple willingness to be with what's here, whatever's here, to meet it with as much clarity and kindness as we can. And then to offer up, to open our hands, open our hearts, to generously share any goodness, any insight, any benefit or merit that may have come from our gathering together this evening, sending it out, radiating it out to touch the lives of the many, many beings all over the world. seen and unseen, known and unknown, who are also struggling, perhaps feeling a sense of despair or discouragement, of pain. By the power and truth of our practice together, may we together with all beings, awaken a mind of clarity and insight, awaken a heart of kindness 
of tenderness, of compassion. Please take good care of yourselves and I will look forward to seeing, I hope, many of you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.